Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Good morning. Uh, My name is George Marshall. For anybody who doesn't know me, I'm one of the pastors here at the Mount. Um, We're going to be looking at John chapter 7, uh, verses 37 through 52. So let me go ahead and read that. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. When they heard these words, some of the people said, This really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. But some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? So there was a division among the people over him. Some of them wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? The officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? And they replied, Are you from the Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to be in your word this morning, um, to come together as a body. God, we ask you to speak. Um, May they be your words and not mine. May we experience the presence of your spirit this week uh, more richly and fully as we obey what we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. I spent quite a while trying to come up uh, with a personal illustration that led into the message this morning. Um, Those of you who love The Hobbit, and I do mean the book, not the movies, Um, will be saddened that despite a wonderful mapping between Nicodemus and Bilbo, um, I've decided against it. Um, Those who do not like The Hobbit, well, you're welcome, and I'm praying for you. No, uh, anything I thought of that would relate the hope of Israel and the spirit welling up inside us left me kind of dumbfounded, a little bit just it was off. And so instead, I want to remind you briefly of an Old Testament prophet's encounter with the Spirit's invigorating power. So Ezekiel has a vision. The Lord God drops him on a mountain plain, a valley between peaks. It's littered with old, dry bones. And God asks him, 
Can these bones live? Ezekiel stammers something unintelligible. God, undeterred, tells him to prophesy over the bones and cause them to live. And so he begins. Behold, a rattling. A rattling? A rattling? I don't know. Bone to bone, sinews, flesh. And then God says, prophesy to the breath. Make breath come on the slain. And Ezekiel does. Breath comes into them. An exceedingly great army stands alive once again, ready to do the Lord's command. And God says in Ezekiel 37, 11 through 14, to cap off this vision, Son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Behold, they say, our bones are dried up and our hope is lost, and we are indeed cut off. Therefore prophesy and say to them, Thus says the Lord God, Behold, I will open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people, and I will bring you into the land of Israel. And you shall know that I am the Lord when I open your graves and raise you from your graves, O my people. And I will put my spirit within you, and you shall live, and I will place you in your own land. Then you shall know that I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it, declares the Lord. And this is what we're up against this morning. God desires nothing less than to raise the dead. To make a people for himself who will stand holy and ready for service. He has the power to do it, and he bids us to come and to drink. So as we look at today's passage, the first thing we must deal with is a nation's hope. In 597 BC, a first wave of Jerusalem's finest were exiled to Babylon. God had warned Israel and Judah repeatedly what the consequences of their unfaithfulness to him would look like, and he was just in his judgment. In 586 BC, after an unwise rebellion by a puppet king Zedekiah, Jerusalem and its temple were destroyed. And then from about 538 to 444 BC, Babylon having fallen to the Persians, waves of exiles began returning to Jerusalem seeking to rebuild the temple, Jerusalem itself, and a people. But nothing was the same. They hoped to find glory when they returned, but it wasn't there. The monarchy was gone. The rebuilt temple was less than they hoped for. And in 63 BC, Rome annexed the land of Israel, like that. Nope, you don't really have a nation, you're just, you're there. As Jesus steps up on the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, a weary nation brings, uh, hangs on his words. They're weary of Roman occupation. They're spiritually weary. They long for God to act and to rescue and to restore. They hang on the words of prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Joel who speak of restoration, a new covenant and new hearts. The Spirit poured out on a changed nation. And so it's on that note that we come to verses 37 through 39. And John writes, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts. Seven days have come during the feast. Water has been carried to the altar, drawn from the pool of Siloam. Seven days the people have been living in temporary shelters, these tabernacles, 
reminders of their time in the wilderness in the days of Moses. When God tabernacled, tabernacled, tented with them, just like Jesus was doing with his disciples. Looking at the people, Jesus recognizes their need. It's not a physical thirst. He's not talking about them being parched in that way. It's a spiritual thirst, a spiritual anxiety, a longing for God to act and to rescue and to save. And John writes this for us because we are spiritually thirsty. We're parched. We're sinners in need of a Savior, but we fight against it, don't we? We fight. We don't want others to know our dirty laundry, and we certainly don't want to be laid bare before God in his holiness. Ever since Adam, we're the inheritors of a fallen nature that is full of pride and gossip and lying and murdering and adultery and unfaithfulness and on and on. So Jesus cuts to the chase. If anyone thirsts, we all thirst, we've already said that, at these words of Jesus, cried out for all to hear, all should turn to him with open ears. Because we're all spiritually dry apart from him. We're dried up. We're dead. Just like those dry bones in Ezekiel. We all need a savior. We can't work our way out of our sin condition. We love our sin too much. And the more we love it, the more hard, dry, and dead we become. Ezekiel 36, right before the Valley of Dry Bones, envisions Israel as a desolate waste, but then turned into a garden like Eden. God will cleanse them and put his spirit within them, he says. Give them new hearts. Impossible, they say. It's just not going to happen. But this, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, and continues with a simple offer, let him come to me and drink. There's relief in Jesus. That's what we want to hear this morning. He only says, come. For the thirsty, he simply says, come. Jesus, the all-sufficient Savior that we've already seen in John, he'll, he'll meet our thirst. What did he say in John 4 to the Samaritan woman? If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying it to you, give me a drink. You would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. But listen, Jesus goes further. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Not only will Jesus give all that is needed for eternal life, but this same stream will overflow the banks. His supply is more than abundant. We seek enough to quench our spiritual thirst. Jesus offers us rivers of living water. Blessing not only for us, but for those around us. John makes it clear, just in case there's any doubt, Jesus is talking about the Spirit. The Spirit is the water that Jesus offers. The Spirit that Jesus gives is able to restore us. But more than that, it empowers us to live lives of holiness. It's not just about salvation. It's about holy living before God. It empowers us to love one another, to care for one another, to exhort and forgive one another, 
the Spirit is fully capable of empowering not just us, but God's covenant people, the church. Before we move on, I want to show you that Jesus is the fulfillment of this Old Testament feast. It is actually kind of important. The first day of the feast, one of the priests would have recited Zechariah 14.8, which says, On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. For seven days, they've seen an illustration of that promised water being brought to the altar. They would have remembered Israel's wanderings in the wilderness, their sin and idolatry, God's patience and provision. Manna to eat, you saw in John earlier, water from the rock envisioned here in John 7. And isn't that what John has been trying to show in John 6 and 7 all along? Jesus is the bread from heaven, the new and better manna. And here he offers the water of the Spirit, filling out that imagery that the Feast of Tabernacles is meant to show. Moses, in anger, struck the rock, wearied by a bitter, complaining Israel. God was still powerful to save in the moment of distress, but but Jesus is better. Jesus is the one who says, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus the the Son is patient with his people, just as the Father has been patient with his people. Patient and forgiving, patient and providing. Jesus is the one the festival looked forward to all along. It was always about him. The one who provides in our weariness, the one who provides in our wandering. In the ugliness of our sin, he calls us to see our sin as he sees it and receive his remedy, the spirit flowing like rivers of living water. One final thing as we look at verses 37 through 39, John comments on Jesus' words and says, for as yet the spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, we shouldn't read past this too quickly. We may become a little bit inured to this language, but what does John mean by glorified? We might read this to mean Jesus' resurrection, or we might think, no, he's talking about his ascension. But if we look a little further ahead in John, what we find is that John equates Jesus' glorification with his crucifixion. Jesus has come for the very purpose of dying. In his dying, he will be glorified, and the Father will be glorified. And in his dying, he will send the Spirit, a promise not just for Pentecost, but for every one who will believe on his name. A promise to all who are thirsty and who respond to the call to come and drink. Before moving on, let's talk about us for a moment. Do you feel this thirst? Do you have a longing to see God restore what's broken? Do you long to see your sin nailed to the cross? You want to cling to it. Dead in our sins, God offers refreshing waters. He offers spiritual resources to deal with our guilt. In fact, he went to the cross to bear your sin, and not only to bear your sin, but to empower every 
good thing, every opportunity for holy living. Pleasing worship in his sight. The cross, Jesus glorified through being lifted up as he does the will of the Father is, it's enough. It's sufficient. He's all sufficient for our need from now to eternity. And will, will you respond to this longing God has put there for a reason? How does the writer of Hebrew puts it? He says, therefore, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated on the right hand of the throne of God. And lastly, a warning. There's an insidious and perverse way of reading these verses. We could read them and come away with the impression that God's whole design is to bless us, to make us happy, self-actualized, to make us have a good self-esteem and riches in abundance. And if that was what you heard me say, then I just want to briefly correct myself. Christ's glorification comes through a cross. Jesus invites us to come to him and find rest, and that rest involves a cross. Jesus promises to provide for every spiritual need, but he doesn't promise blessing free from suffering. He doesn't promise us life of nice. Jesus didn't experience a life of nice himself. He experienced a life of rejection, a life of deprivation, a life of betrayal and misunderstanding, judgment, and eventually death. We should expect no less. Even in America, we should expect no less. But he also experienced a life of unity with the Father and the Spirit. He experienced the joy of fulfilling the Father's will. He enjoyed a community, a small one, with those he was discipling. And he invites us into that. So moving on to the people's hope. We're going to look at verses 40 through 44. John begins... When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Others said, this is the Christ. People were right to think that something was up. They heard Jesus' proclamation and took it as Jesus saying something amazing about himself and his mission. This wasn't just moral teaching. This was revelation of who Jesus was. But there was a lot they didn't know. Um, interpretations were many. Two possibilities are suggested by portions of the crowd. Some say that Jesus is the prophet like Moses. Deuteronomy 18 told us that God had promised to raise up a prophet like Moses, and he would be basically speaking exactly God's words. And when he spoke those words, the people would be accountable to obey them. And Jesus is that prophet. Others in the crowd say that Jesus is the Messiah, the Christ. Ultimately, in our terms, it means the anointed one, the king in David's line. And we're used to seeing those two roles wrapped together in one person, the person of Jesus, but Israel wasn't there yet. They expected God to raise up a prophet like Moses, and they, they longed for David's line to be restored. 
to find themselves ruled by a just king after God's own heart. They just didn't imagine they would be one and the same person, nor certainly that that would be very, very God. Not everyone is so positive, though. Continuing, we read, but some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? Jesus lets the assertions stand. Jesus is the prophet like Moses. The people should listen to him, and we should listen to him. Jesus is the Christ, the offspring of David, born in Bethlehem. Despite their ignorance of his upbringing, Jesus is all these things. I think the most humorous thing that they say, the most ironic piece is the last. The people have studied enough to know that Jesus was to come from Bethlehem which is described as the city where David was. Not where he was from, where he was. But David was hardly there. He was born and raised there. But after Saul pulled him into service, Bethlehem was a distant memory. And in the same way, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, but quickly removed to grow elsewhere. They don't catch it. They don't know. They're ignorant of Jesus' origin. And so they judge him, and they say, hey, can this possibly be the Messiah? It doesn't fit the bill that I know about. All of this calls us to ask two questions. Uh, the first is, are we in God's word? And the second one is, are we seeking godly teachers? So are we in God's word? Is scripture our home? Do our most important questions find their answers there? Or somewhere else. Is Jesus shaping us by his word, or is it something else? Is it family or culture? Is it the news? Is it social media? Do we long to know God more, or must we be forced to open its pages? God has given us a means of knowing him better. Are we engaging it? And are we seeking godly teachers, or are we looking for teachers who will parrot our opinions back to us, who will make us feel good about ourselves. The Israelites of Jesus' day, they looked up to the Pharisees as the interpreters of the law. We have this immediate negative connotation about the Pharisees, but the common people thought the Pharisees were the cream of the cream, the top of the, the batch. They were, the, the, they were getting it right. They looked up and said, these guys know their stuff. They know the law. But it wasn't a two-way street. The same teachers who they looked up to despised them. We're going to see that further in this passage. They looked down upon them. They considered them accursed. They're not, they can't even understand the law. They are not worthy of our attention. We'll be righteous and let them, God will sort it out. They did the opposite of Christ, who loves, who protects, who seeks and saves the good shepherd. With all these opinions, John tells us that there was a division among the people over him. Luke records Jesus saying, do you think that I've come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. And John shows us the fulfillment. Jesus' mission continues to be one of revelation to his disciples that leads to separation within the crowd. Some hear and believe, while others reject. His people hear and obey those the Father has given him. 
They quenched their thirst with his overflowing mercy and grace, but not all come. Because of their reticence to take hold of him, it seems they had been told to look for an... Oh, I think I missed something. Okay. I think I caught something. Anyway, so um, where we were going with that is the officials come and they say that they didn't take hold of him. Um, so I missed a paragraph, but it's gone. It's not even there. Lovely. Um, so they, <laughs> they couldn't take hold of him. And what this really is pointing to is they'd been told to look for an opportune time. They weren't just told to arrest him. Otherwise, they would have just done the job. They were told to look for an opportune time. Do it when it's not going to raise any hackles or cause any contention. And that was not going to happen. Jesus' proclamation loud, standing up, everybody's going to hear it. The crowds are in a tizzy. There's no opportunity. And so they go back to the chief priests and the Pharisees, and they're like, yeah, we couldn't do it. No, there was nothing we could do. Don't think of this as a coincidence, but instead as a divine restraint. Jesus will go to the cross at the God-ordained time and not a moment sooner. Jesus still has work to do building his infant church, and the people's hope is Jesus glorified. Again, crucified. The people's hope is Jesus glorified, sending the Spirit to empower a church that will Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Jesus isn't letting anything get in the way of that mission. With that, we're going to jump to a Pharisee's hope in 45 through 52, verses 45 through 52. In verse 45, John writes, The officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, Why did you not bring him? The officers answered, No one ever spake, uh, spoke like this man. Jesus is different. He's, he's not just a moral speaker, a good moral teacher. He's not your easily boxed-in political savior. He's not offering the economic plan that's going to bring salvation to Jerusalem. He isn't a gem of a general just waiting for his moment to storm Herod's palace. He isn't just giving you his best guess at what rituals will get you right with God. He is God. And Jesus' offer is, is palpable. These officials, they're not civil cops. These are people trained in Scripture. They are well-trained underlings of the religious leaders. They're functionaries of the temple complex. They know the Mosaic law as well as anyone. And they are torn between their commission, their work for the Sanhedrin, and what they hear from Jesus. Power and authority, the promises of God, and a passion for the lost, the dry and the lifeless. Nevertheless, they have to come and report to the chief priests and the Pharisees. In verse 47, we find the Pharisees are nonplussed, shall we say, by the official's failure. It reads, the Pharisees answered them, have you also been deceived? Really, have you been led astray? Are you in error now too? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed. The Pharisees are right to some extent. The people are accursed. 
They, they stand under a burden of sin they are powerless to address. Where they trip up is not in, is, it's in not including themselves. They need Jesus just as much as the people. Apart from Jesus, they have no hope. And Israel has no hope. Jesus is Israel's hope. What does Paul say about this? He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Christ has taken that curse for us. Glory to Jesus. Paul also writes to the Corinthians, not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. The Pharisees, along with the other rulers in the Sanhedrin, have puffed up heads. they got big, huge heads. They look down on God's people. They, like their fathers before them, are the shepherds of Ezekiel 34, whom God will put out so that he can lead the flock himself. The question actually, again, just drips with irony. No good Pharisee would even consider Jesus. He isn't one of them, for crying out loud. Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? Enter the scene one Nicodemus. Nicodemus, who had gone to him before and who was one of them, said to them, Does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, many criticize Nicodemus's timid. But I think that fails to appreciate the situation that Nicodemus is in. If they can seek Jesus' life in the public, they can certainly lock Nicodemus up in the Sanhedrin. When Nicodemus met with Jesus at night, he was just curious. He'd seen and heard Jesus, but didn't understand. He was a teacher, but needed to be taught God's mercy and grace, his means of salvation. Even now, it's unclear that he's yet a believer, but he sticks his neck out to defend Jesus. He's come a long way. Nicodemus is not a sizzle in the frying pan like, like Judas. He's not a hot-headed Peter, nor a cerebral and driven Paul. He isn't necessarily a patient and brotherly Barnabas. But he's real faith worked out slowly. Going to Jesus when he doubts and has questions. Being faithful when it costs him something. And we need more like him. Those who will let themselves look the fool for the pleasure of serving Christ and knowing him better. At the end of the day, Nicodemus is one of those who is happy to take up his Lord's name, to be associated with Jesus, whatever the cost. What Nicodemus does is imply that his fellows, the Sanhedrin, by attempting to attack Jesus as a lawbreaker, are actually breaking the law themselves. They haven't followed the law. They're condemning Jesus as a lawbreaker, but they're the lawbreakers, is what Nicodemus is implying. They sneer at the common Israelite, thinking them incapable of piety, incapable of pleasing God, and without even realizing it, stand condemned by the law. And the proof is in their response in verse 52. They say, are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. 
all Nicodemus has done is suggest fairness. He hasn't defended Jesus, really. He's just said, shouldn't we be fair? It's a low par. Nevertheless, the Pharisees show contempt. They scorn even this slight defense of Jesus. They're angry. They're out for blood. They're revealing their hate-filled hearts and proving Jesus true in everything that he has said. Jesus looks on with pity. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus offers us everything we need for salvation and for holy living. More than that, he doesn't just offer it. His death has positively paid for it. Jesus went to the cross to purchase both your salvation and your sanctification. All of that by the Spirit. He ransomed individual believers and a church that would learn to love one another and display the excellencies of Christ, Jesus, our Lord. So what to do with all of this? If God has challenged you to put your heart and soul to the task of knowing his word better, then amen. That's great. Maybe there are voices in your life, like the Pharisees, who drag you away from Christ, who enslave you to patterns of this world. Flee. Others of you this morning may need to dwell on the longing, the conviction for sin, to feel the weight of it and the way it dries up life, to spar with God like Israel, to spar with God and eventually know what it looks like to wait expectantly on him and cease from striving to make your will happen your way. To find in Jesus the source of your rest, your peace, your joy, recognizing your need for a Savior is just as important for the Christian as for the non-Christian. Jesus was lifted up to give us the Spirit, to ransom us and deliver us into a kingdom of light, to be a holy people. We don't get saved then proceed on our own. We still need the quickening work of the Spirit daily. Or maybe you've grappled with the sin, and that is all you can see. What you need is to come and drink, to respond to Jesus' call. And I just say, come, experience the boundless mercy of Christ. Come know Jesus. Glorious God, friend of sinners. And if you want to talk to someone, I'm here, Brian is here. There's any number of people here who would talk to you. Or you may have needed a word of encouragement. You see Christ, but your faith and trust seem slow to develop. Take Nicodemus and go to Jesus with him. Rest in Jesus' offer to the thirsty in a faith that's slow but sure. One foot in front of the other, following Jesus in his footsteps. Ready to step forward when Jesus calls. Joined with him in suffering for the gospel's sake a response full of just worship and gratitude for boundless grace. Will you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word this morning. We ask you to use it to make us more like yourself. God, help us to love you more, to seek your glory, to find our satisfaction and our joy in you, 
Help us as a body to do this together. To become more like Christ. That the world would see it. Father, we bow before you and we give you our all. We ask you to do with it what you will. In Jesus' name, amen.